excited today. We're starting a new series of teachings. So if you're joining us for the first time, you picked a good week. It's kind of like seeing the beginning of the movie. So that for the next four weeks, you'll kind of know what we're talking about, um, as opposed to arriving to a movie late, which I've done a few times, and I spend the rest of the time like, no, who's that guy there? And then I have to ask questions, and then I get a lot of shushes from the people around me. So you guys will be one week smarter than everybody else who comes starting next week. So um, the title of this series is called The Altar. The altar, and I'm excited about this. I've been wanting to do this series for a while. When you hear the word altar, um, what do you think of? Like as far as a, a, a noun, an altar, what do you think of? And in our world today, it's we don't really talk about this in our church world today. Um, you might think of a wedding. Well, I got married at the altar, right? And uh, you might think back to that day. And, and really, an altar in the wedding terms is is like that. It's a place of commitment, but it's also a place of sacrifice. And so, if you ask maybe some married couples or maybe some dating couples, it would be good. Maybe there's one person in the dating couple who sees the altar as a place of commitment. And let's for, you know, overgeneralizing sake, let's just say it's the lady in the relationship and she's dating this guy and she sees the altar, the wedding altar, as the place of commitment. And so it is, I want to I get that guy to the altar. And the girlfriends are saying, girl, you got to get him to put a ring on it, right? you got to get to the altar because that's the place of commitment. That's how you know it's for real. And maybe, again, overgeneralizing it, and certainly not the case in the Kerr family dating relationship when Christy and I were dating, but maybe some guys see the altar as the place of sacrifice, right? They're like, oh, man, and his friends are like, don't go to the altar, dude, because that's the end of your life right? The end of your freedom and the individual life that you have, it is sacrificed and it is game over. And maybe that's what we think of when we think of the altar. And it really is both of those things. The idea of an altar, as we look through scripture, it's a place of commitment. It's a place of sacrifice. It's a place where you encounter God, where you have that holy place, that holy moment, and it really applies in a wedding ceremony, that holy moment where you come together and you say before God, we are making this commitment. It can be something totally unrelated to marriage. You're coming into a place and you're saying, I'm making this commitment before God. Maybe some of you last Sunday before the kickoff of the Vikings game set up a little altar and said, God, if you will provide, I will make all these changes in my life. And then you had a crisis of faith about 10 minutes into that football game when you knew the outcome was not going to be like we had hoped for as Vikings fans. But the idea of an altar is something that God sets up in Scripture. Right from the very beginning, Noah, if you're curious about this, Noah was the first one mentioned in the Bible to set up an altar when they were leaving the ark after God flooded the earth. And it was that covenant moment between God and humanity of, we're going to be in this together. We are going to live for you, God, and you are going to provide for us. God sets up the idea of an altar when they were building the temple or building the tabernacle. There was two altars that were set up. One was the altar of incense right by the Holy of Holies, right where the presence of God was dwelling in that time. And the altar of incense, they would always burn incense on that altar. And it was this idea that God, God's presence is there. This is a holy place. He is present with his people. There was an altar set up near the outside of the temple for animal sacrifices. People would bring their sacrifices, their offerings, and lay them on the altar. And then if it was a, a certain sacrifice, they would set that altar on fire, and the fire representing kind of the, the purification of God would, would send his mercy. And because of that sacrifice, the people would have forgiveness for their sins. And this whole idea of an altar that God sets up is really based on this idea that God is saying to his people, I want you to be my people. 
I want you to be, it's a churchy word, consecrated. I want you to be set apart for me. I want you to live for me, and I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to give you mercy and new life. And this is the idea of an altar where something is sacrificed to God, where a commitment or a covenant is made with God, a place where you experience the presence of God. Now, in this church, we haven't really had a lot of times, maybe you grew up in church and you think, well, we had an altar call. There was always an altar call, right? Have you ever experienced that? And I've experienced lots of those. I grew up in church. I'm a pastor's kid. And so I always experienced, I remember early on in life, maybe about five or six years old, I was at a kid's camp. Maybe I was seven or something like that. I was at a kid's camp and the preacher gave an altar call. And the idea there was, kids, if you want to give your life to God, if you want to have forgiveness and eternal life and go to heaven, and sometimes those altar calls were a little more fear-based, right? For little kids, it's like, you can go to heaven or hell. You pick right now. And all of us kids are like, well, I'm, up, I'm there. Like, I'm scared. I'm not going to sleep good tonight, but I know I'm going to heaven someday. Um, and I remember doing that as a kid. It was an altar call. I went up to the front of a, of a tabernacle at a campground. Here, this would be, you know, we would say the front is kind of the altar area. I remember times growing up in church, there would be altar calls. And my dad was the preacher, and my mother was the piano player. And we didn't have a lot of kids' ministry. In the, there wasn't a separate service for kids in our church. So when I was younger, it was me and my brother. And then as I got older, I'd be sitting with my friends. And my parents had this amazing ability, an amazing ability, one that I do not have, to control the behavior of their kids from the platform just with a look. So my mom would be playing the piano, and she could see me goofing off, and then she would just give me that look, the mom look, and it would be, oh, i got to pay attention. There was one time I remember my dad was preaching, and he gave <coughs> excuse me, kind of an altar call. Sorry, I'm not getting choked up. I think I just swallowed a bit of a donut or something. My dad gave an altar call like, if you want to get, if you have things in your life, if you want to get right with God, if you want to rededicate your life to God. And I remember sitting in the back row and I was like, I don't think I'm going up because then everyone knows I got stuff going on and I don't want that. But then my mom at the piano gave one of these, the, the total, you better get up here. And I, and I, this is as when I was a teenager and I confronted her later. I said, mom, why'd you do that in total Ruth Kerr fashion? She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I never did that. Mom, you leaned right over and you stared at me. And she said, well, obviously you must be feeling guilty. That's the, we call that the Holy Spirit, the conviction. But I remember times we had Sunday night church growing up. Anyone grow up with a Sunday night church service? You had Sunday morning church service and then you had Sunday night church service. And I always thought, well, why do we have both? And it was always a little different. It seemed like more of the committed people would be there on Sunday nights, the people that wanted to do church twice in one day. And you're thinking, twice in a day? I'm like twice in a year, and I'm good at church. But this is, we would go back, and there would be longer times of worship. And at the end of most Sunday night services, what would happen is the altars would be open. And it wasn't a salvation call. It was just, if you want to spend time in prayer, and I remember as a teenager, as a youngster, growing up, and just coming to the front of a church room like this, and just kneeling down or just worshiping, and those were such significant moments for me. Maybe you've experienced some moments like that. Those were moments growing up where I learned to recognize God's voice, some very significant moments where God was asking me to take a step of faith or change the direction of my life or a moment of commitment to God. Those all happened at an altar. Those all happened at a moment where I was kneeling before the Lord just praying, just laying my life on an altar and, and hearing God say, here's the direction I want you to go. Here's a step of faith we want you to take. Such significant moments happened at the altar. And we see that throughout Scripture as well. 
significant moments with God and his people happening around an altar. This series, I want to look at four stories over the next four weeks, different amazing encounters with God, times when sacrifices were offered, times when lives were committed to him. And as we look at these stories, I want it to be more than just looking at the way God used an altar in the past. I would love us to have moments like that in our church. And today might be a moment where it's an altar call salvation moment, where you've never given your life to Jesus. And I would love to have you have an opportunity like that at the end of service, just to say, for the first time, I want to give my life to Jesus and receive mercy and salvation and new life. But other than that, I would love it to be times where, as Homestead Church, we grow in this idea of just spending time in the presence of God. Spending time in the presence of God. Unlike the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the altar was by the Holy of Holies. It was definitely a place where the presence of God was. But in the New Testament, we know God's Spirit is everywhere. We, we know that that happened after Jesus rose from the dead. That God said, I'm going to put my spirit, it's not going to be in a temple anymore. It's going to be in all of the people who are followers of Jesus. So there's nothing magical about the front part of this church, right? It's not, there's not different air up here. It's not the holy place. And we know that the spirit of God is with us. But on the other side of that, there is something significant when we say, you know what? I know God's presence is in me. I know what's in the heart matters. But there's something significant that comes when we say, you know what? I am going to lift up a hand. I am going to say, yes, God, I'm making that commitment. I am going to stand where I'm at. Or maybe you want to kneel down, or maybe you want to come to the front. There's just something significant in our heart that happens when physically we take a step and we just say, I'm going to lift up this hand, I'm going to come to the front, and I want us as a church to grow in that. But today, the story we're looking at today is found in the book of 1 Kings. It's in the Old Testament. It's about a quarter of the way through the Bible. If you have, uh, there's some black hardcover Bibles on the end of the, some of the pews. I know we're missing a few. I've got to order a few more. Um, that's going to be the same translation of the Bible that I'm reading today. The words are going to be up on the screen. There's also some red Bibles in there. There's hymnals. So don't look at a hymnal because you'll be confused. You'll never find what I'm looking for there today. Um, but there's some Bibles there if you want to follow along. But more than that, I would love to have you bring your Bible to church if you've got one. And just kind of make a mark or a note where we read the scripture on Sunday morning, and throughout the week, you could just read this same story. This story we're going to read today is such an awesome story. There's so many different cool elements of what God is doing in and through his people. I would love to have you take some time this week and just read it, and maybe God is speaking something unique to you. Maybe even at home, you're having that altar moment where God is saying, here's what I'm asking you to do. Here's what I'm asking you to give or to sacrifice or this commitment I'm asking you to make. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to look, and it's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, all right? And we're going to look at this awesome, one of my favorite stories. Now, what's happening in Israel is this. They are a nation, and the, the wonderful, righteous days of a nation under King David are in the rearview mirror, and now the king of Israel is a guy named King Ahab, Ahab, and he is not a good king. In fact, the Bible describes Ahab as a king who not only did evil, but it says this in a couple chapters before what we're looking at today. He did more to provoke God's anger than any other king. How would you like that to be, you know, what they put on your tombstone at the end of your life or like with a plaque that you hang on the wall? I did more to provoke God's anger than anybody else. You know, first place. That's kind of what Ahab was. Ahab, in this uh, nation where altars before God, the one true God, were such a significant thing. Ahab sets up altars to the God of Baal, 
a, a false god, an idol that was worshipped by the surrounding countries. So here's the king of God's people, the king of Israel, where he's not only neglected the altars offering to God, he's setting up altars, holy places for a false idol. So of course God's anger is going to be provoked. Of course God is going to see that as a betrayal. And what happens is, in the midst of this, all this idolatry, as the leader goes, the country follows, and there is idol worship everywhere. And there are still some people that are kind of devoted to God, and then they're kind of devoted to the false god of Baal. They see, well, our God is good for some things, and then we'll worship this God for this thing, and then we'll trust in this God for this thing. And idol worship is everywhere. And in this environment, God speaks to Elijah, who is a prophet, who is devoted to God. And God speaks to Elijah, and he says, because of the wickedness of the people of Israel, there's going to be no rain. And in the translation that I have, it's there's going to be no rain for a few years, right? And it turns out to be about three and a half years, no rain. And this is in the Middle East. This is a place where it is very dry to begin with, but no rain for years. And as a result, there is a severe drought, a severe famine, no crops, no food. Livestock are perishing. People are perishing. And this is the environment where God speaks to Elijah. Now, one kind of side note of this story, this is why I would love to have you read this story. This is in the chapter before, in 1 Kings chapter 17. There's a moment where God is leading Elijah in this environment where there's no water, there's no food, people are starving, and God continues to lead his prophet, and he continues to provide. And there's a moment where Elijah is being led, and God leads him to a brook where there is water found. And then he has... And this is just a great story of God's ability to provide when we have no idea how God is going to provide. Maybe you've been in a season like that. If you've been in a season where you thought, I I don't have work right now. I have this bill. I have this other thing. I have no idea how we're going to make ends meet here. I have no idea how God's going to come through. This is such a great story because in a way that you couldn't even imagine, Elijah is there, no food, and all of a sudden God commands the birds to bring Elijah food. Elijah is fed by the ravens, literally. The ravens come and drop food at Elijah's feet. And this is God's ability to provide. We've had a season where we didn't know. We were, we were in between jobs, and we didn't know how God was going to provide. We had taken a step of faith. But we trusted in God's ability to provide. And there were times, literally, well, I shouldn't say literally, because there were no birds. That would have freaked me out. There were times when we felt like we were being fed by the ravens where resources would come, checks would appear in our mailbox from people, and we're like, well, that's exactly the gap that we had this month, and God has provided. That might be what you need to hear today, is that God is the God who provides miraculously. And he wants your heart to be devoted to him, and in the meantime, he says, if you will devote yourself to me wholeheartedly, I'm going to take care of everything else. I can have birds fly and bring you food. That's who God is. I can provide in so many ways. But this is what's happening with Elijah. And after three years, there's evil King Ahab, and there's Elijah, and there's all these people that are prophets of Baal, the false god. There's all this idol worship. It gets to a breaking point where the king says, I think this is all Elijah's fault, this famine. We got to find God's prophet and we got to kill him. So Elijah's on the run and all these things are happening. And finally it hits a breaking point where what happens is Elijah gets word to the king and says, okay, let's settle this once and for all. Let's settle this once and for all. Meet me on Mount Carmel, bring all the prophets of Baal, all the idol worshipers, and we're going to meet and we're going to find out whose God is for real. Awesome story. And that's where we pick it up 
in chapter 8, verse 20 of the book of 1 Kings. The words will be up on the screen. Sorry, chapter 18 of 1 Kings, and I got a page stuck together here. There we go. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20, it says this. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. So get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. This is the challenge that Elijah sets up. All, this, is, this is like showdown. This is the main event. You prepare a sacrifice on your altar. Don't set fire to it. I'm going to prepare a sacrifice on my altar. We're not going to set fire to it, and we're going to pray to our God. And the one who sends fire, he is God. That's a bold step of faith from Elijah. I love his words to the people, a people who are so double-minded in their faith. He says, quit wavering. Quit wavering. Just choose. Stop living for Baal some days and God for some days. Just choose. If God is God, why would you want to follow any other gods? If Baal is God, then follow him. But just choose. Quit wavering back and forth. And then he says that the God who answers by fire, which I find very interesting, because you would think the challenge would go like this. We've been in a drought for three years. We've had no rain. So the God who sends rain will be the one that we want to worship. But God says, the God, or Elijah says, the God who sends fire and the people are probably like, we don't need fire. The stuff is dry. It's hot. We don't need, we don't want to all gather around a fire. We need rain. But it's so significant to me that Elijah says, the God who sends fire. Because Israel would have thought what they needed was rain. But Elijah knew what they really needed. They needed a sacrifice for their sin. They needed fire to represent the holiness of God, that sacrifice being made for their sin. Israel thought they needed rain. Elijah knew they needed forgiveness. They needed a sacrifice to be made. They needed, first and foremost, more important than rain for crops and livestock, they needed a heart that was in right relationship with God. This is what Elijah is saying. Quit wavering. God is going to provide a sacrifice, and our hearts can be right again. That is the most important thing. That is the most important thing that we, once again, dedicate ourselves to God. Because if you read through the scriptures, you learn this about God. He is an all-or-nothing God. He's not happy just saying, oh, just give me a little piece of your heart. Just give me a little piece of your life. Whatever you want to do the rest of the week, just give me Sunday mornings, 11.15-ish to 12.15-ish at Homestead. Um, no, he says, I want your heart. I want you to lay your life on the altar, and in exchange, I'm going to come in and give you new life and hope and purpose and provision. This is what God does. He is an all-or-nothing God. Now, we all, in some ways, kind of waver back and forth, right? We all have those moments where we're like, oh, I, I was worshiping God. I, my devotion wasn't where it should have been this week. We all are in that spot. 
But when we get to a moment at an altar, our first and foremost thing of importance is this. We have to have a heart that is right with God. And this is what Elijah is telling his people. So the story continues. The sacrifices are prepared. All the prophets of Baal, they get their altar. They sacrifice the animal and they lay it on the altar. And uh, that's where we pick up the story in verse 26. Verse 26 says this. So they took, this is talking about the prophets of Baal, they took the bull given to them and prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. This is where the story is great. At noon, Elijah began to taunt, began to taunt them. Okay, so if you've read through the Bible, there's certain stories of trash talking in the Scripture, which is so great. I actually thought it would be a fun series to do of just all the moments of trash talking in the Scripture, and this is one of them. Maybe in, you, you're used to that in sports where one team is losing, and you can tell the other team is just... You, you saw it last Sunday with the Vikings game. You could tell, oh, there's some trash talking going on there. That would be hard to take. Elijah does this. God's prophet says this. Elijah began to taunt them, verse 27. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. And for those of you who think sarcasm is not in the scripture, here it is right here. So, Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Perhaps your god is out of town is what Elijah is saying. Perhaps he's just out of town. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until the blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Those words are haunting to me at how often we build our lives on something false, whether it is finances, relationships, security, whatever we want to build our life on. And when it's crisis time and we're crying out to those things to save us, there's no response. Nobody answers. It's that hopeless feeling of I have built my life on something and there is nobody's responding. Nobody's coming to help me. Those haunting words, there was no response. No one paid attention. There was nothing there. In spite of their frantic prayers and you imagine them all with with all the fervency they could muster, dancing around and cutting themselves and shouting and trying to get the attention of their God. There was nothing there. And now it's Elijah's turn. Elijah's turn. Now note the difference in tone when Elijah starts to pray. There's just a confidence there. He's not trying to muster up the attention of God. If I do enough things, if I make enough noise, then I'll wake up God and he'll pay attention. No, he knows his God is the God who hears. And this is what the story says, starting in verse 30. Then Elijah said to the people, come here to me. And they came to him, and he, now get this, he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. So what is happening here is he is repairing the altar that had, had been there, the altar that had been set up for worship for God. He repaired it. He didn't build a new one. He just repaired the one that had been neglected. And with 12 stones, so significant that he picked the 12 stones because when they first became a nation, when God first made that covenant, one stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel and you will be my people, your name will be Israel and I will be your God. He 
as a way of reminding the people, saying, remember where we came from. Remember, we were God's people. Remember when we had hearts completely devoted to God. This is what he's doing when he's building the altar. Then in verse 32, it says this. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed, which means apparently a lot of seed. He arranged the wood and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four jars with water, four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. So four more large jars of water, pour it on the altar. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. So you think of this, and obviously what Elijah is doing is he doesn't want to be accused of any trickery, right? When his altar, his sacrifice, when God sends fire, he doesn't want people to say, well, the wood was super dry anyways, right? So he gets four large jars of, of, of water. It's like a kid at, at the magic show where the kids got all the answers. Well, I saw him. He had the handkerchief up the other sleeve. You know, he had all the cards are the jack of hearts. And, you know, they've got, I saw the string attached back here. He didn't want any of the prophets saying, well, when we were distracted over here, I saw Elijah throw a little match on the altar, which was already dry and hot because of the drought. No, he surrounds it with water, pours four large jars of water three times. And the other thing I, that stood out to me, which I've never thought of this before, they're in a three-year drought. It hasn't rained for three years. So where is this water coming from first? And as Elijah gets four large jars of water and pours it out on this sacrifice, I imagine everyone there being like, ah, no, 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 don't pour the water out. Where'd you get it? We need that. We need that water. That's precious stuff. It hasn't rained here in three years. But again, this is Elijah's ability to have faith in God and God's ability to provide. Elijah's not worried. He's not thinking, oh, man, this is the last jars of water we have. He knows God's going to provide. He pours the water out on the altar as just another reminder to the Israelites in their half-heartedness to say, you think water is what you need. What you need is a right heart. What you need is a life on the altar, a right relationship with God. And then in verse 36... This is what happens. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. And I love this prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back Again, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Awesome. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Note Elijah's confident prayer. He's not dancing around like the prophets. He's not trying to get God's attention. And note the focus of his prayer. His prayer, as it, if it were me, it would have been something like, God, um, these people have all been trying to kill me for a while now, and I'm here now, and if you don't do something, I'm a dead man, so if you could show up so that I would live, or if you could help me, that would be great, or if you could show yourself real so that these people don't all think dumb things about me or make fun of me or taunt me. Remember, I was trash-talking them a few minutes ago earlier in the day, so I really need you to come through now so I don't look dumb. 
You know, all of these things would have been very natural for Elijah to pray. But his prayer, the focus of his prayer, so singularly focused on God. God, I want you to show up today so that everyone will know you are God. So that everyone's going to know that you are the one true God. Everyone's hearts will be focused on you. Every eye will be focused on you. This was his prayer. And God responds. And the people obviously respond. This wasn't like a small fire that burned the sacrifice and the wood. The stones, the dirt, the soil, the water all around it, gone. Like that's a, that's a cool moment. And the people fall on their face and they recommit themselves to God. The altar is a place of commitment where we commit ourselves, we consecrate ourselves to be set apart completely for God. And I love that another message in this story is that God hears his people. God hears his people. Contrast that with the loud shouts and all the dancing around that the prophets of Baal were doing, trying to get the God's attention that they were looking to. And Elijah simply just saying, God, I know you're God. Come and show yourself to be real so everyone will know you are real. I think somebody here today, you're probably feeling like God is maybe needing to be woken up in your life. You're maybe going through something. Maybe you're feeling desperate in a certain situation and you feel hopeless. And you're trying to find an answer in any sort of way. Find a solution in any sort of way. And you feel like you're trying to get God's attention, but there's nothing coming back. You're trying to feel like, God, I'm, I'm making all this noise. Where are you? Would you please help me? Are you traveling? You know, are you asleep? Why are you not helping me through this? We see here that the God, our God, is a God who hears his people, right? Our God is one who has his ear turned to his people. You don't need to struggle for his attention. You don't need to struggle for God's attention. No matter what you're facing, the depths of whatever you're walking through, you don't need to struggle for God's attention. He is there. He hears the prayers of his people. But what we learn in this story is if you're feeling like you can't get God's attention, the first step that you need to make is to bring your wavering heart to an altar and just say, God, I commit myself to you again. And we always need to do this. There's always areas of compromise in our life. I do this often. I was like, again, Lord, all the areas in my life, Lord, I bring it to you, and again, I commit myself to you. I'm not going to be perfect. We're never going to be perfect. But that first step is to bring your life to an altar and say, I lay it down before you, Lord. I lay it down, the one true God. And that's when we see God respond in amazing ways. He's always there. His ear is focused and turned to his people. So some of you today might be here, and you might need to repair the altar as Elijah did. Maybe your heart is wavering. Maybe you used to be devoted to God, and now your heart is kind of wavering back and forth. And some of you just need to take a moment and say, I'm going to rebuild this altar. I'm going to rebuild an altar where I can commit my life to God, where I can bring my wavering, divided heart and say, once again, God, it's about you. I want to live for you. I want to lay down, to sacrifice everything I am, and take on your new life. Bring your life to the altar. Quit wavering. I think if Elijah was here today, he would say, you know what? Just choose. If you want to live for the world, live for the world. But if you want to live for God, live for God in every way. 
Live for God. Take on his life, his purpose for your life. I love the idea of an altar of sacrifice where we never sacrifice something and it's lost. All that happens is we lay something down and God exchanges it for something better, right? In terms of, let's put this in terms of a marriage altar where maybe there's a guy who's like, I don't want to go to the marriage altar because then my single life and my individual freedom and all those things are sacrificed never to be get back again. No, what do you get then? You get a whole new life as a married couple in a church environment. If you lay something down before God, maybe you're saying, I don't, I don't know if I want to give my life to God because then my life is gone. No, it gets exchanged for something better where God says, I've got a purpose for you. I have provision for you. I have healing for you in every area of your life. Lay down your life and I I will exchange it for something better. Times when we give financially, we say, well, I'm never going to see that money again. No, what God says is we ex- he exchanges that for something better of walk in generosity and in faith in God's ability that he's going to provide every way. Imagine walking through life knowing no matter what you face, God's got this. That assurance that Elijah had, imagine living that. Anytime we lay something down at the altar, God exchanges it for something better something better. Nothing given at an altar is ever lost. It's exchanged by God for something better.